Father, uh, we confess before you that um, we often think we understand and hear your word, but we actually aren't hearing your word. That we are projecting, Father, onto your word our fears, our vanity, our demands. Uh, Father, that we project these things onto your word, and so we do not hear your word. Father, we ask that you would gently but deeply pour out your Holy Spirit upon us so that we might uh, listen to your word, that your word might enter deep into our lives, and that as your word enters deep into our lives, uh, we will bear much fruit that brings you glory. And this we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Please be seated. You folks know about the taping as well? Is that starting? Perfect. Uh, we have uh, if there, a few things are going to be disorganized today. Uh, if, in fact, when it comes time to do communion in a couple of minutes, well, more than a couple of minutes, um, there's usually a, a woman here who makes sure that all the right people are here. And she, I didn't know if the reader was going to get up. I don't know if the intercessor is going to come. I don't know if there's going to be enough people to help with communion. Uh, and uh, on top of that, the person who always does the audiovisual, they're away. So if things are a little bit more chaotic than usual, then you can just tell your friends to come to a place that does not believe in organized religion, and, uh, and, uh, and it'll make our church more attractive, I suppose, to people. So um, uh, we're taking a couple of weeks' break from the Book of, Psalm, uh, book of Romans, uh, which is what we're going through, and uh, I'm preaching on Psalm 1 today. Now, here's the thing about Psalm 1. I hope I haven't put you all to sleep by saying something like that right off the uh, right off the top. And I didn't do something here. Now I have. Okay. But um, I don't know if you remember when Laurie just read Psalm 1 just a couple of moments ago. And if you have Bibles, we're going to be looking at Psalm 1. But um, it, it, uh, a lot of us hear Psalm 1. Well, here, here's the thing. I don't know how many of you here struggle with addictions. Uh, I don't know how many of you struggle with alcoholism or maybe some type of sexual addiction or some other type of addiction, but um, those of you who don't suffer from something like alcoholism or an addiction, uh, you really don't understand the inner life of people who do struggle with those things. Because often in the inner life of those who struggle with addictions, Uh, alcohol being one, it could be sex, a a whole different range of sort of compulsive types of behaviors that people return to time and time and time again. Uh, For those who um, often are either struggling with them or succumbing to them or at least profoundly drawn to them and you have to fight against it, even if you're not engaging in the behavior, there's a very, very particular way that an an addict uh, understands themselves and talks to themselves. And um, one of the things in the inner life of an addict is their belief that they're doomed. And uh, they believe, uh, we believe, that uh, we will be a failure. That even though things can be going very, very well right now, uh, that's not what is real. What is real is that things will fail. In fact, often as well what goes on in the inner life of a person who struggles with addictions is the belief that there's just basically something bad and wrong about them. And that, in fact, at some point in time, it will be revealed to people that they're a failure. Uh, And that, in fact, as people get closer to us, rather than this being something to look forward to, it's actually something to worry about. Because as people get closer to us, 
they'll realize that there's something failed and wrong about us. And that's the inner life, uh, a key part of the inner life of somebody who struggles with addictions. And it means that when they hear, now all of us, of course, have times that we think that we're afraid of failure and uh, or that there's just something wrong with us. But there's a, a profound difference between those who just, it's a bit of a momentary thing or a short season in your life that you believe those things. Whereas those of us who struggle with addictions, it's a far deeper thing. It's like almost always going on there. In fact, what often drives the person towards addictive behaviors is an attempt, a belief that a particular thing, it's alcohol, drugs, or sex, uh, you know, maybe sex with women or sex with men, that will, if you can actually have that, it numbs things long enough for you to sort of function. Um, And so... For people who struggle with addictions and that type of behavior, when they hear a psalm like Psalm 1, you know, about the chaff uh, that uh, the wind drives away and the righteous not stay, you know, the wicked not standing in the day of judgment. For those of us, even though we might be Christians, we hear this psalm and say, I'm the chaff. I'm the chaff. And we might try to pump ourselves up to say, no, I'm not chaff, I'm not chaff, I'm a tree of life, 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 I'm a tree. But inwardly, we're saying all those things, but inwardly, chaff, chaff, chaff. Uh, Not stand, not stand, not stand. And for those who don't uh, struggle with those types of addictive behaviors and stuff like that, when, 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 when we read the Psalms, in fact, it can be very easy to think, yeah, I'm going to stand in the day of judgment. I'll stand with the assembly of the righteous. I'm a tree of life. <laughs> I mean, there might be times you sort of don't feel that way, but it's just it's, it's far easier to believe those types of things. Uh, those of us who struggle with believing that we're chaff, we, we wish that we could believe it, but it's sort of hard. It's not in our bones. It's not sort of somehow in our DNA. That, it got robbed from us at some point in time in our life, and then our subsequent actions have made it even worse. And so it's very easy then for a room like this, even a room where probably the majority of us are Christians, to hear a psalm like Psalm 1, and in a sense to hear the common words, but to experience the words in a radically different way. I'm going to read the psalm again, just sort of now that you're a bit mindful of it, that it might be very much the case that the person you sit beside or the person who's sitting across from you is going to have a very different experience of this psalm as I read it again, or as you read along with me. It's Psalm 1. Blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the wicked, nor stands in the way of sinners, nor sits in the seat of scoffers, but his delight is in the law of the Lord, and on his law he meditates day and night. He is like a tree planted by streams of water that yields its fruit in its season, and its leaf does not wither. In all that he does, he prospers. The wicked are not so, but are like chaff that the wind drives away. Therefore... The wicked will not stand in the judgment, nor sinners in the congregation of the righteous. For the Lord knows the way of the righteous, but the way of the wicked uh, will perish. Now, it's it's interesting, not only um, do some of us, uh, those of us who struggle with addictions, just it's very easy for us to believe that, you know, at the end of the day, I I know and I believe that I'm going to go to heaven, And I'm thankful for it, but in our lived experience, we just believe that we will perish, that we are chaff, that we are the wind that will be driven away, that we will be, that that's just, it's a very, and in fact, actually, those of us 
who are Christian addicts might actually think that these addictive types of thoughts are a sign of humility and our knowledge of our sinfulness. It can play in very, very deeply in Pentecostal or Presbyterian or Baptist or Methodist types of circles. But our our self-attacking is not actually coming from the Bible. It's coming from this type of addictive lens by which we understand and see the world. Now, I'm not saying that religious people and spiritual people are all addicts, but it's also very interesting that from a religious perspective and a spiritual perspective, uh, we'll hear this psalm in a very, very different type of way. Like, we'll hear the psalm as if, well, this is just, this is very, very good. God has given his laws. And uh, wise people who are going to succeed in life, they learn the laws of God, and they do the laws of God, and they don't spend time hanging around with people who are bad and going to give them bad advice. And you stay away from people who give you bad advice who are going to get you into trouble, and you follow God's laws, and you will succeed. And... Um, and in fact, you know, it might, that might take the form of in, you know, maybe very, very formal churches uh, or traditional type churches, which really emphasize the law and the thou shalt and thou shalt nots. Or maybe it's a more modern or postmodern church where uh, what, it, what they talk about more are, uh, you know, the 10 laws about how to have successful children or the five laws for successful marriages or uh, how to have uh, favor with your boss. And there's a whole pile of how-to things. But But it's easy for us to hear this psalm and think, oh yeah, this psalm is really, really wise. It's just reminding us that there's these rules or techniques or advice that we need to follow. And if we follow these advice and and these steps, then we're going to be successful. And we're going to go to heaven. And we just stay away from bad people. And bad people ignore what's going on with God and ignore these rules or these principles or this advice. And and they're going to go to the bad place. And interestingly enough, not only then from a very religious perspective can we read this psalm and think we agree with it, but with very little changes in it, a devout Muslim could like this psalm. Now, the devout Muslim will understand that there's different things to do than a Christian will think there is to do. If you come from a very, you know, uh, uh, Christian thing, you might be thinking of, well, you might be thinking of the Ten Commandments if it's a very old-fashioned type of church or uh, in a new, new church, it might be the Beatitudes, <laughs> how to be. Uh, but in a Muslim, it might be that you make your trip to Mecca, that you fast during Ramadan, that you give to the poor, you do the normal things. And if, in fact, actually in traditional Buddhism or Hinduism, you could read Psalm 1, and you would also think that this actually is just talking about the, the fact that you're either going to go towards reincarnation or you're going to finally achieve nirvana. And uh, you, you, just, you just do the, you know, the, you, you do the alms, you do the sacrifices, you do the meditation, you do the yoga, you do these different techniques, and you follow these techniques that come from God somehow or another, and good things will happen and you don't do them, and bad things will happen. And in fact, it's very, very interesting that religious people and even spiritual people where the rules might be very, very different for spiritual people because spiritual people have sort of made up their own principles or discovered their own principles and mixed and matched. And it might be that for spiritual people that, I don't know, you vote Green or you vote NDP at least, but you definitely don't vote for Harper. And, you know, you you do some yoga and you do a bit of this and, and, you know, and, and, and a whole range of types of things. You show some kindness and generosity you pay it forward, etc. But at the end of the day, whether it's spiritual or religious, whether it's a Christian form or a Muslim form or a Hindu or Buddhist form, we can all end up reading this psalm and actually agreeing with it. And once you think about that, you think to yourself, 
one moment, there's something wrong here. There's something wrong here uh, with this. And there's two different types of wrongness. It's the religious, spiritual way of reading it. And there's the addict and non-addict way of reading it, which sort of gets mixed into that other type of thing. But it still just sort of doesn't, that really can't be what's going on with the Bible. And we don't really realize it because it's just so easy for us, maybe in our circle, and that we know that it's, I don't know, using the prayer book or singing praise music or having a choir or whatever it is. And we just think we know what the different rules and the processes and steps are. But you take a step back and all of a sudden you say, I don't know if this can actually be really what the, the Bible is all about. Now, some of you might be wondering, why on earth did I come to this church where George is just going to say all these, all these really boring and depressing things and it makes it sound as if we can't read the Bible? Doesn't George believe the Bible? I, I believe that the Bible is God's word written. I believe that uh, every word in the Bible is the word that God wanted to have there. And I believe that because I, I believe and trust Jesus, and that's what Jesus taught. And it's what the Bible teaches about itself. And, um, but just, just because, in fact, actually, if we believe that ultimately the Bible is God's word written, then we have to be careful about replacing God's words with our words unwittingly. And not actually trying to hear what God is saying, but assuming that from our addictive perspective or religious perspective or spiritual perspective that we understand what he's saying, but we don't actually spend time trying to actually listen to it. And, and here's the thing. I believe that in the heart of this text, not only what I've just done can show that it's possible to misread it, but the very, very heart of this text, there's a riddle. And that if we read the text carefully we realize that there's a riddle in the very heart of the text, a riddle which, in fact, is uh, very, very, very revelatory. So let's read it again. Follow along with me. And now that I've said that there's a riddle in the text, just try to hear if you can sort of have a bit of a sense about where this riddle is in the heart of the text. A riddle that goes... You see, the thing about the Bible is the Bible's not cynical. And the Bible's not hip. And the Bible's not just uh, a whole pile of series of rules and techniques that we can just use for our own advantage. But the Bible isn't cynical. But the Bible is God's word addressed to our human heart. Like it, it addresses our heart, the center of who we are and how we understand things and how we make decisions, the center of our allegiances. And the Bible always confronts our heart in the context of the reality of the fact that there is a God who's created all things. That's how the Bible speaks to us. So listen, try to listen the second time as we read the psalm and, and see if you can notice the riddle in the psalm. Blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the wicked, nor stands in the way of sinners, nor sits in the seat of scoffers, but his delight is in the law of the Lord, and on his law he meditates day and night. He is like a tree planted by streams of water that yields its fruit in its season and its leaf does not wither. In all that he does, he prospers. The wicked are not so, but are like chaff that the wind drives away. Therefore, the wicked will not stand in the judgment, nor sinners in the congregation of the righteous. For the Lord knows the way of the righteous, 
but the way of the wicked will perish. And we're not going to be able to have, I have points, but just due to some of our technical problems, we're not going to be able to be up on the screen. Uh, those of you who are interested and can't write them down, they'll be on, online on Monday or whatever. But here's, here's the first thing. Psalm 1 contains a revealing riddle. How can chaff become a tree planted by streams of water? Psalm 1 contains a revealing riddle. How can chaff become a tree planted by streams of water? In other words, how do verse 3 and 4 work? How is it that you can be in verse 3, he is like a tree planted by streams of water that yields its fruit in its season and its leaf does not wither and all that he does he prospers. The wicked are not so but are like chaff that the wind drives away. And many of us probably don't have much of an experience of chaff. Hopefully you all have experience with onions. And so if you've ever bought a bag of onions, a three or five or 10 or 20 pound bag of onions, and just think of those onion skins that when you pick up the bag, there's all these little flaky skin type things of onion. That's chaff, okay? So how is it that a tree and an, an onion skin like how is it that one how is it that onion skin can become chaff? I mean how how so how can an onion skin become a tree? Like how on earth can that be? Like how can that be? Um, you see, religion, our temperament will just sort of make us read this text thinking, well that George, all the text is just saying is that you know, some people are just born doomed. They're just born to perish, George. They're just, they're not the elect. They're just born to, you know, some, some forms of Islam understands that your destiny is written on you in the womb. And in, in, in some ways, it doesn't even really matter whether you do anything at all, any of the things in the Quran, you're going to go to heaven. Some people are going to go to hell. That's just the way it is. And, and, and in religion and spirituality, there's in a sense a type of proud assertion that, of course, by our way, by our church, if you're part of our church and you follow our way and you follow our rules, then you will be a tree of life because you're part of us and we are tree of life people. And if you don't do those things, that you're, you're on the outside. But, but, but surely, I mean, this, this Psalm 1 is recognized by Jewish people and by Christians right back from the early days of the Christian faith to today as the entrance into the Psalter. Is God just saying, trying to write something so that if we, at the end of the day we read this and we say, you know what, I'm reading this, I think I'm chaff, I guess I should stop reading the book. Like, isn't, obviously, if this is the entrance way into the Psalter, isn't it, isn't there some type of encouragement to be a type of tree of life? But how on earth can chaff... How on earth can an onion skin, how can an onion skin become tree of life? That just doesn't make any sense. And so, I think what this psalm wants to do, when you sort of grip, gripped with this, and, and the fact of the matter is, is that unless you're unbelievably self-centered, we all know that there's times in our life that we are like chaff. Even the most unbelievably, constantly positive person has times that they're down. So at some point in time, it has to hit them. Now, I have to remember, I do this from your point of view. Okay, your point of view. So I think for Christians, uh, for, for people in David's day, or no, whoever, whoever wrote the psalm, it wasn't David, um, and they didn't know anything at all about the cross or anything like that. I think the only responsible th th response that they could have with reading this that would have to set them up for the rest of the, of the Psalter 
is a, is a, a, a profound sense that God has to do something. Otherwise, they have no hope. In fact, my second point would be that only God, by his grace, can turn chaff into a tree planted by streams of water. Only God, by his grace, can turn chaff into a tree planted by streams of water. And so if you were a believing Jew and you were reading this text and you come to Psalm 1 and it one day strikes you that how can chaff become a tree, it, real, it will make you realize that all the way through the Psalter, as you're reading the other Psalms, even as you're praying them, that God wants you to come to this view that it's not a matter about you justifying yourself. It's not a matter about me making myself righteous or declaring that I'm righteous or forcing people to understand that I'm righteous or forcing people to understand that I'm justified or that I can, just, that I can somehow by my willpower or by my religious acts or by my prayer life or my praise songs or something or other, try to force myself or force others into recognizing me as, as, as not chaff, never chaff, never perishing, always tree of life, always, 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 that if we can't do that, I read the Psalter saying, only God. Only God can deal with this. That, in fact, the opening psalm if we actually try to read it and aren't just reading it from an addictive or non-addictive personality or religious, where those who've just, like people who just give up on religion altogether or any type of rules or any type of following God or any just give up and all, it's just all a whole pile of crap. Uh, you know, religious people and spiritual people, they're just people who think that their poop smells better than other people's. In fact, it doesn't even smell at all. It smells like roses. Uh, but they're just deluding themselves because their poop just smells as bad as everybody else's poop. Uh, they're just deluded. We're just being realistic and honest. We just sleep in, and then we just go to a bar, and then we watch football, or we do whatever we feel like, and life is just a lot better if you just... That this psalm is saying that all of that type of dividing the world into this, it's going to have to... Only God, only God, if he is real... Only God can change chaff into a tree of life. And only God can stop me from perishing. And only God can put me in the assembly of the righteous. And only God can cause me to flourish. Only God. We start to read the psalm in a new light. And, but for those of us you know, if, who are now reading this psalm on this side of the cross, the cross is now for us in the past, we see that not only does the psalm have a riddle that's forcing us to recognize that only God, it actually also gives us a bit of an understanding about what it is that God is going to have to do to answer the riddle. Listen to the psalm again. In fact, I'll tell you what it is, and then we'll read the psalm. In love and grace, Jesus became chaff driven away by wind. So by faith in him, God will make me into a tree planted by streams of water. In love and grace, Jesus became chaff driven away by wind. So by faith in him, God will make me into a tree planted by streams of water. Look at the, let's listen to the psalm again. I'll start at verse 1. Blessed is the man 
who walks not in the counsel of the wicked, nor stands in the way of sinners, nor sits in the seat of scoffers, but his delight is in the law of the Lord, and on his law he meditates day and night. He is like a tree planted by streams of water that yields its fruit in its season, and its leaf does not wither. In all that he does, he prospers. The wicked are not so, but are like chaff that the wind drives away. Just sort of pause there. At the heart of the gospel is this idea that God, looking down at human beings who cannot make themselves into trees planted by streams of water by their own efforts, that if they think they're doing that, they are just, in a sense, suffering under some type of a, a type of, of, of sad delusion. But it's, they can't do it. And, and God, the Son of God, the second person of the Trinity, out of love for human beings and out of grace and mercy and out of love for the Father, love for his creatures and love for the creation, he steps down from heaven. He sets aside... His appearance is God, his glory is God, his majesty is God, his power is God. He sets aside his, his position at the right hand of the Father. He sets aside all of those appearances as God, and he humbles himself. He still is God, but he ends up being born in, as a single cell in the womb of Mary. And he suffers, not suffers, he lives a normal human life. But then on the cross, he empties himself and becomes chaff-like even more. The image of chaff driven away by the wind is, a, is an image of judgment. And Christians believe that on the cross, when Jesus dies upon the cross, that he is suffering the judgment that you and I deserve. That he suffers that for us. That he, in a sense, becomes chaff for us. He takes upon himself the punishment we deserve. And he even on the cross experiences God's judgment that he experiences that he's driven away from God when he cries out, my God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? And out of love for you and me, Jesus becomes, Jesus who in a sense was life, was the tree of life, was verse three, becomes verse four for you and me. In fact, if we go on and read, therefore the wicked will not stand in the judgment. Jesus stands for the wicked and stands in our place in the judgment. Nor sinners in the congregation of the, of the, of the righteous. For the Lord knows the way of the righteous, but the way of the wicked will perish. In my place condemned he stood. In my place he perishes for me. In my place he becomes chaff driven away by the wind. And in the gospel, when we put our faith and trust in Jesus, it's not just that in my place condemned he stood, but he, he trades places with me. Like everything about the cross is not only an act of substitution, but it's an act of exchange. His life given for me, his life given to me, my chaff driven away by the wind, taken upon him, given to him, and taken by him. And that's what he does in the cross. There's a, a very, very well-known uh, part in the Bible in Revelation 3 where it says, um, Behold, I stand at the door of, and knock. 
And uh, in fact, here, I'll just read it. It's Revelation 3.16. I think it's Revelation 3.16. And it's a, a very, very famous image. It's verse 20. Behold, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come into him and eat with him and he with me. Say it again. Behold, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come into him and eat with him and he with me. See, here's the thing about the shamelessness of God, only God. Most people, they're probably a little bit like myself. Um, I, I had given up on religion. I, I wanted to be part of the counterculture. I wanted to do all sorts of types of things. I, I, didn't, I, I, didn't, I found religion, I found Christianity boring. I found it irrelevant. And then I, I, this, this God started to get my attention. And then as I, as I start to get I, in the lives of different Christians whose lives have just been an, completely and utterly transformed and being in, in, in Christian congregations and groups that just somehow it was able to break through my force field and I was able to just sense that there was this that Jesus was there, that he loved me, that there was a type of a longing for him that I had that could not be satisfied by anything else. And it started to be as if I, I recognized that Jesus was standing at the door of my heart and knocking. And the Christian life begins when you stop just sensing that Jesus is trying to get your attention, but you, in a sense, if you visualize, you just open the door of your life the inner door of your life, and you open it up, and there's Jesus standing on the other side. And you say to Jesus, uh, Jesus, will you come into my life? Will you come into me? And not only come into me, but do just live in me. Just have your way with me. Come in, not just as a, as a guest that I serve you, but that you might come in as, as Savior, and you might come in as Lord. And for every person, we don't have to wait to figure out whether we're part of the elect. We don't have to wait for a particular religious experience. For every person who does that, Jesus comes in. And I, I only had a hazy notion of the cross. I only had a hazy notion of all of these things. Um, I, I just sort of understood that I, I was chaff. And if I ever wanted to be at all connected to life, I had to let Jesus into my life. But then God is so shameless he comes in not expecting us to know perfect theology, but then as, as Jesus comes into our lives and we start to read the word and start to think about things, and it, it, we start to realize what it is actually that Jesus has done for us on the cross. That he set aside his life. He offers his life to me and takes for himself my chaff driven away by the wind. He offers his life that will never perish and takes upon himself my life that will perish. That it is not just an act of substitution, but an act of exchange, freely and utterly given. And that when he comes in by this act of grace, he turns chaff like me into a tree planted by streams of water. Not because of my beauty, not because of my power, not because of my religion, not because of my affections, not because of my accomplishments, not because of my IQ, not because I'm Canadian, but all because of him. All because of him. 
And so, as we're gripped first by the riddle, and then by Jesus, and then by the gospel, as we're gripped by the gospel, it starts to do its work of um, changing how we read, changing our experience of God. My, my fourth point, we're going to read this psalm again in light of this, but as I am gripped by the gospel, I will humbly and hungrily read all of God's word and think on it. As I am gripped by the gospel, I will humbly and hungrily read all of God's word and think on it. As, as the riddle of the text about how it is, even though I might suffer from addictive thoughts, even though I, I suffer from all sorts of idolatries, even though at times my default position is religion or spirituality, because at, at the heart of all religion and spirituality is self-justification and self-righteousness, and the gospel, as I'm gripped by what Jesus does for me on the cross, as I'm gripped by it, it undermines my self-justification. It undermines my self-righteousness. It undermines my idolatry. It undermines my self-perception of myself. And, it's, and, and all of those things are rooted in what Jesus has done for me. And so listen to the psalm again as we read it. Blessed is the man... Well, one moment, only God can do that, can't he? Like, only God can bless. Only God can do it. Like, even the very opening words of the psalm are teaching us that there's to be this mystery at the heart of it, that it's not about my righteousness and, and my accomplishment so I know that I am part of the elect, that it's going to have to be God doing a miracle because it says, blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the wicked, nor stands in the way of sinners, nor sits in the seat of scoffers. And at the heart of the gospel, that at first might begin with a whole pile of fear about things. And it's not, it's, I'm not at all trying to undermine the fact that, that, we, we, should, that, that we should be a, a, a flee evil, but that as the gospel grips us, as the gospel grips us, it, it provides a, a different ground for seeing and understanding things and even understanding the Bible. It provides a shape and it starts to shape us as it grounds us. And it nudges us into things and draws us into things so that we see evil and wicked and, and all of those things in very, very different ways. And then we even start to understand that it doesn't mean wicked and sinful. It doesn't mean just people who, I don't know, they, they, uh, they do pornography. They're involved in, this, in the sex trade uh, and, 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 and slavery and, and, and violence and all. But it, also, it just includes anybody and everybody whose life is organized around the claim and the desire that they will be like God and they do not need God. <laughs> The soccer mom in Canada who does not need God because she has her life completely under control. But those of us who've been humbled by the riddle know we are all beggars. And all we can do is tell other beggars where to find life. And that's what God offers us in his son, his life. Verse 2, but his delight is in the law of the Lord, and on his law he meditates day and night. And law of the Lord, here's this really interesting, law of the Lord in, in the Hebrew, it's Torah. And what does Torah mean? Torah means uh, instruction in the context of a covenant. 
doesn't just mean some impersonal principles. It means instruction by God himself, by Jesus, who becomes chaff for us and gives us his life. It's his instruction in the context of the fact that in his death and resurrection, he now lives within me, that he knows my chaff-likeness. He knows that I cannot become a tree by my own power. And it is in that context that he instructs me. It's within this context that I am a beggar, that it is in this context that in my place condemned he stood, that I hear his instruction And even the word God or Lord here is very, very interesting because in the Hebrew, and there's there's no way we can capture this in English, in Hebrew, the word Lord for God is a verb. In the Old Testament, the covenant name for God is not a noun, an object out there amongst other objects that I can control. God is a verb an action, an action towards me, not something that I can capture and manipulate or put in my debt, but Lord as a verb. And then just um, pause before I read verse 3. And here's sort of my final point in closing. We read this next description as we understand that in light of the cross, we are listening to God's, a verb that cannot be controlled. Him, he's wild and untamed, but completely and utterly good. And he who is now within me because he has died to be my savior. And he knows me deeply because he's inside of me and he instructs me and he instructs me knowing that I can never by my own power accomplish these things, that I am always completely and utterly dependent upon grace. And as he speaks to me in his instruction, and I listen to his instruction, then verse 3 begins to be true of you and me. And as we read it, keep in mind this. God graciously makes trees, not pipes. God graciously makes trees, not pipes. Listen to this, verse 3. But he is like a tree planted by streams of water that yields its fruit in its season, and its leaf does not wither. A pipe for water takes water from here to there or wherever it is, and a proper pipe lets none of the water out. All of the land or whatever it is around it stays completely and utterly dry. But God doesn't say here that he turns us into pipes. He turns us into trees planted by streams of water. And a tree also, in a sense, moves water. The tree takes the water in. But as the tree takes the water in, in the context of the other things that give it life, it turns into leaves, it turns into fruit, It turns into a place where birds and small critters can take their shade. It turns into a place where our neighbors and our friends can come and have a picnic underneath it in the shade and the cover that it gives. A tree with its roots um, uh, helps to stop the soil from falling apart and going into the stream and being washed away. And the tree provides, helps to provide oxygen for us to breathe. 
And it isn't just that as we meditate upon the God who is in covenant with us, that all of a sudden through us just flows these spiritual things that pop out of our head or come out here and in here and pop out of our feet. Uh, And it's not just all of a sudden all we do is that we sprout out Bible verses, but as our Savior, as we are gripped by the gospel, and as the gospel shapes us and grounds us and nudges us, and draws and pulls us, and we start to listen to the instruction and the words of the one who died for us because he loves us. Well, out of that comes businesses that we can start that will bless the city. Out of that comes poetry, and out of that comes music, and out of that comes art, and out of that comes dance, and out of that comes families. Out of that comes mothers and fathers and children. Out of that comes neighborhoods. Out of that comes different ways of handling money and using money. Out of that comes a whole range of fruit and other creational consequences, all not for our glory, but for God's glory. It comes in as words carried by the Holy Spirit. It goes out. Well, we're trees, not pipes. It doesn't come into us and leave us unchanged. It changes us. That's why it's so important for those of us who are gripped by the gospel that we call out to God to ask him to help us to hear his instruction and to read his word. And to read not just little bits and pieces of his word, but to read all of his word. There's some things in the blog. There'll be some more things in the blog over the next coming weeks to encourage us to be Christians who read the word and read all of the word and read the word every day. As it says here, um, but his delight is in the law of the Lord and on his law he meditates day and night. Please stand. I want to challenge you. If you haven't given your life to Jesus, if you sense you're here this morning and you sense that Jesus is knocking on the door of your life, I want to exhort you to not be afraid. He's the one who left heaven's glory to become chaff driven away for the wind by the by wind for you. That there's no better time than today that and maybe you're an imagine a person uses imagination, maybe it's words, but imagine just opening the door that's inside of you and seeing Jesus which is who is there who's been knocking on the door of your life and say, Jesus, please come in. Please come in and be my Savior and my Lord. Thank you for dying on the cross for me. Please come in. I give you permission. I invite you to come in. There's no better time than today. If you are here and you've never done it and you sense that knocking, answer the knock, open the door. (laughs) I urge you. And for those of us who have opened the door, Um, and we're reading the word. I just want to encourage you to be regular in the word and to be regular in reading the word from cover to cover. And for those of us who've maybe not understood that God wants to continue in the context of a covenant of love and security in the context of the gospel to speak into your life, to call out to him and ask him that you would help, he would help you to start to read the Bible every day and to start to read it cover to cover. And then take action on it. I encourage you to make that commitment before God. 
Let's just bow our heads in prayer. Father, for those of us who suffer from addictions, Father, we ask that uh, you would just continue to pour out your Holy Spirit upon us, that you would make us disciples of Jesus who are gripped by the gospel, that understand that even though we might believe that we are chaff driven away by the wind, that you, you, Father, desire to heal that by the ministry of your Holy Spirit, by the instruction of your word, that we might understand that in Jesus, you are turning us who are chaff into trees of life out of your love and for your glory. And Father, for those of us who, even though we've opened the door of our hearts to Jesus, have slipped back into religious understandings of the text, believing that we can manipulate you and control you, that we can manipulate and control others to see us as righteous and justified, all by our own action and by our own effort and for our own glory and to keep you at a distance and people at a distance. Father, we ask that you would continue that work of grace that you would pour out your Holy Spirit upon us and help us to die to self-righteousness and self-justification, to be gripped by the gospel and what your Son did for us on the cross. Father, pour out your Holy Spirit upon us. Make us disciples of Jesus, gripped by the gospel who live for your glory. And Father, for all of us who are your people, help us to be people of your word, to listen to your instruction every day and to think upon it in light of the gospel. And this we ask in the name of Jesus, your Son and our Savior. Amen.